Welcome to On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Sitting in front of a fireplace. Uh, it's a giant fireplace on a sofa. And I'm in North Dakota with a um, WPA, a waterfall production area, absolutely filled with ducks. Um, and it's almost within shooting distance right out the back window here. It's, it's an un believable setting um we're in stickle stickle stack lodge did i say that right no what's a sticklestead sticklestead easy for me to say sticklestead lodge in near lisbon north dakota wpa out the back window and as i was prepping for this episode um and you've already heard rachel um just for a moment but we'll introduce rachel in a minute uh, she's our state coordinator in north dakota but as i was prepping for this I, I was reading about teddy roosevelt and when teddy roosevelt was going to harvard uh for college he was told by his family physician that he was pretty sick and he didn't have long to live um and he left Harvard to go to what was then the Dakota Territory in 1883, and it changed his life. Um, we'll see if this trip to North Dakota changes my life, but it <laughs> changed Teddy Roosevelt's life. At 25, he lived in uh, the Little Missouri Valley of North Dakota, and he fell in love. He fell in love with the land. Um, it it turned him healthy and inspired him. And he wrote, um, he later wrote, he was quoted, I never would have been president if it had not been for my experiences in North Dakota. And you think about Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, North Dakota inspired his love of nature, his love of hunting, his passion for conservation. And today, Teddy Roosevelt is known as the conservation president. He, so he became president in 1901. He established the U.S. Forest Service, 150 national forests, 51 bird reserves, 18 national monuments, and five national parks. In a grand total of 230 million public land acres. All because he went to North Dakota. So that's where we are. We are in North Dakota. We are with the Pheasants Forever team in the state of North Dakota. They're giggling because I'm saying North Dakota, <laughs> like the true youper that I am. Um, and, and sitting here with um, um, our entire Pheasants Forever gang uh, for the state of North Dakota. And I'll, I'll jump right into the con conversation with Rachel Bush, our state coordinator for the state of North Dakota. And listeners will have to forgive us. We're going to have a little bit of a Michigan love fest for a moment because we both share that in common. Welcome to On the Wing podcast, Rachel. Thanks, Bob. All right, share. You, you are a troll, I'm so a I'm going to call you out there first. So the non-Michiganders in the audience, um, I am a youper, Rachel is a troll, and that means that she grew up below the Mackinac Bridge. So underneath the bridge, thus being a troll. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, so yes, you got to laugh at that. She is from, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, us Michiganders, we get our, our maps out, right? Yep. 
And uh, Rachel is from the right hand of the map, right? right the hand. lower. Uh, in what town? Uh, the town is Onondaga. Onondaga. Yeah. And I would be from the left hand, <laughs> the Upper Peninsula in Escanaba. Yeah. But that's, that's the extent of our Michigan talk. Um, North Dakota, you've been in North Dakota for quite a while now. I have. I originally moved out here um, for the first time, I guess, in 2003 was out here uh, from 2003 to about 2007, left for a couple years, and came back in 2011 and have been back since. Oh, so I didn't know that there was a gap there. So that's really interesting because if you frame that in um, like CRP acres, Conservation Reserve Program acres, and you're shaking your head because you know exactly where I'm heading, um, if you're here 03 to 07, you saw – the absolute rise uh, in CRP acres to probably 3.3 million acres at the time you left North Dakota, right? Yes, we were. We were. I mean, I left in 2007, which is where we peaked for CRP acres. And I always, I don't know if I was just naive to it. I mean, I wasn't, I was a grad student. I didn't know about farm bill programs. I mean, I'd heard of CRP. Um, what I knew is I could drive 10 minutes from my house I could slam my truck door and probably flush a limit of roosters, you know, right there. Mm -hmm. um, there'd be days we'd go out and we'd go, we'd be hunting 10 miles from Jamestown, which nowadays you don't think of as a pheasant mecca. Um, and we'd harvest our limit of pheasants. We'd get sharp tails. And if we were lucky, we'd get a couple bonus, you know, hunts mm. all with it. And so that was, and it, it, that was the peak. That's when we had habitat on the ground. And yeah, then I left for three years. Yeah, so it would have been super easy to take that for granted, right? Because when you leave in 07, um, that's probably like a four-decade high. I think 07, 08 was a 40-year high for rooster harvest in many states, North Dakota included. And then you come back in 2011... And that's when major conversion, both of CRP acres and native prairie, because North Dakota had a ton of native prairie. Um, and, you know, we've, we've looked at probably that 10-year window from 07 to, you know, 2017, we lost 25 million acres on the prairie. And in North Dakota, that was like, we lost like 60% of, the habitat that existed in 07 to the time you came back or yeah. shortly after. Um, it, it must have been startling in such, you know, a four-year time frame. You come back and you're like, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I mean, not only as a hunter, but, you know, that three years I was gone, I just the, the job that I had, I got involved with the farm bill. And so I mm. became aware of, you know, the Conservation Reserve Program. And so then when I came back to North Dakota, that's what I was working on. So it was... Not only was I acutely aware of the loss of acres because as a hunter, but just in the job I was doing too, I could see them coming out and, you know, and I understand why, but yeah, it's, it was a, it was a stark difference between when I left and when I came back. So we, during this podcast, we're going to dive into what's happened in North Dakota in light of those um, habitat losses, what's going on today with, with the, um, rising phoenix of, of the, the team that we have here in the state. There's a tremendous amount of energy. Um, so we'll get back to that. But we're going to introduce everybody that's sitting around this fireplace. Um, 
tell us a little bit about because if folks follow you on Instagram, they know you like to hunt pheasants, but you are a waterfowl machine. Yes. Um, you love duck hunting, and so tell us how folks can follow you on Instagram. What's your handle? So I'm Rachel on the Plains. Rachel on, on the Plains, very fitting. <laughs> And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at your, your ink on your left arm. It's absolutely beautiful, and it represents kind of some of that Rachel on the Plains. I see a coneflower. I see um, a gold. No. Um, what do I got here? I see a lily even. Yeah, so that's a wood lily. So if you're, I mean, this is, this is the, the art on my arm is kind of my tribute to North Dakota Prairie. All the flowers on here are native wildflowers. And then... Um, even it, though I, I what do we have a meadowlark? A bobolink. A bobolink. Oh. So yeah, I mean a, a grassland songbird. Um, they're common in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. They kind of hold a special place because when I was going to undergrad, um, the school I went to, we did an undergrad research project, and the bobolink was one of the species that I kind of did my work on. So that has a history, and then coming out in North Dakota. But the arm, the tattoo, the artwork is really a tribute to the North Dakota prairies. That's beautiful. Um, your pup. Tell me about your pup. I have two. <laughs> okay. And I know you, I've hunted with you. It's been a few years now. You had a black lab at that time. Yep. Yep. So I've been, we have, I have two dogs. Um, I have a 12 year old black lab, Belle, who, you know, my husband and I both hunt and there are dogs, but Belle's really my dog. Okay. She's my dog. You know, she, she sits, if we're in the field hunting, she sits next to my blind. If she brings a bird back, it doesn't matter who shot it. She brings it to me. Um, so she's 12 and, you know, this year I've really kind of come to notice that she's 12. She's getting a lot of gray. Um, I'm happy to have hunts with her still. Mm -hmm. And then we have the pup who's four. So she's not really a pup anymore. Um, and she's a good waterfall hunter, but uh, she's my husband's dog. (laughs) (laughs) And and another black lab. Another black lab. Yep. And what's uh, this one's name? Luna. Luna. Bell and Luna. It's really short for lunatic. (laughs) So, and her name really fits her personality. And as state coordinator, what does that mean? Oh, that means I get to, so you guys haven't been introduced to the team yet, but I mean, I really get the privilege to help lead the team and help deliver mission for Pheasants Forever in North Dakota and find new and innovative, innovative ways to do that. Um, so it's, I'm super happy to have the team that we do. But a lot of it, too, is partnership building, whether that be with new partners or, you know, strengthening the existing partnerships we have in the state and finding, you know, we're just trying to pave our own path up here. And so taking in feedback and just let's deliver mission in North Dakota and let's do it the way we want to do it. All right. So as the state coordinator for North Dakota, am I saying North Dakota correctly? Well, I'm from Michigan, too, even though I'm a troll. You, got, you definitely got the Uper twin. Yeah, I can pass as a local, right? I mean, I, the Uper and the Fargo are, like, very similar dialects. Yeah, you can, you know, you can tell you've been in Minnesota for a while, though, too. <laughs> oh, really? Well, that's probably true because I don't, leave, uh, I don't leave A at the end of every sentence. Like, when I grew up, I, oh, let's go to the back 40, eh? Right? Yeah. A little bit different. All right, so we will move around the fireplace. Very cozy in here. Um, Renee, you're up next. The Renee Tamala, mm-hmm. right? I have that pronounced correctly. That's mm-hmm. a beautiful last name. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, um, and what you do for the organization. Absolutely. So I'm a transplant from Minnesota. 
So uh, been in North Dakota for about three years now, but great state of Minnesota is where I call home in my heart, but I love North Dakota and um, what I have out here. Um, for the organization, I get the privilege of working with our dedicated volunteers within the state. So I get to help them raise funds and then spend that money on delivering mission. And our um, we have 28 chapters around the state that do incredible work for PF in North Dakota. So 28 Pheasants Forever chapters in the state. Um, it, you know, there's obviously some some big towns that have um, chapters, your, your Bismarck's and your Fargo's and your Dickinson's. But it's amazing when you go to some of these little communities, littler communities than what, you know, you probably used to growing up, um, you know, near St. Cloud and the mm-hmm. cities. And the Pheasants Forever banquet in a town like old you know, Botno is the biggest event in the community for a six-month period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is just, it's just a blast to go to those types of banquets, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, at some of the banquets, I've actually noticed how many people are sitting in a hall wherever the banquet's being held. And um, I drove into the small town and I see the number in attendance at the banquet and I've had to ask, what's the population here? <laughs> yeah. Like, they're all sitting in this yeah. room here tonight. <laughs> and, so. and that's that is absolutely one of the beautiful elements of this organization because you know the fact that those chapters control the dollars that they raise and then you know the community can really rally around that see the dollars raised and then actually see those dollars being put to to work whether that's through you know habitat project or youth event what what's really What's the what's energizing chapters in North Dakota around how they're spending their dollars these days? Um, I think you hit it on the head there. It's it's the community impact, the positivity that they have. Um, They get kids out in the field and out on the trap range and sponsor shooting teams. And um, they advocate for advocate for uh, public access and habitat improvement. So you can see it firsthand in all the little towns and people notice. And North Dakota is one of those states that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think this is true. You know, like it, when you go to uh, um, look at South Dakota, a tremendous amount of our banquets occur opening weekend, right? Because they, there's just such an influx of people that people go to the banquets and they're trying to capture those non-residents coming through and i know that's true of kansas and nebraska that's that's pretty true in north dakota there's a lot of banquets around the opening day aren't there there is yeah october is pretty heavy um our pheasant opener is the first saturday of october it's pretty heavy for banquets um same can be said for all of october but we do have our spring banquets as well too so they are capturing some non-residents that come up but um yeah it's it's pretty spread throughout fall and spring yeah and moving around the fireplace, we're looking at Melissa Shockman. Um, welcome to the On the Wing podcast, Melissa. Tell Thank us you. a little bit about um, your background. Yeah, so um, I'm also a Minnesota transplant, um, but I have been in North Dakota for a little while now. I went to NDSU, and so my background is with wildlife management, natural resource management, and Basically, after I graduated NDSU, I went right to the northwest corner of North Dakota and worked at a 28,000-acre wildlife refuge. And that's where I really got my start with kind of my passion for 
working in North Dakota and then also working for our resources. So, so. in the very far west corner. Yeah, so northwest. So I was like a half hour from Canada and one hour from Montana. So what was the name of that? Kenmare. Well, uh, the refuge was called Lostwood National Wildlife Refuge, huh. which was kind of near Kenmare, North Dakota. Okay. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. So it, it, it big stopover for waterfall and cranes. And oh, yeah, definitely. Part of the Missouri Coteau. So there's potholes everywhere whole bunch of native prairie on that refuge and yeah ducks 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 and more ducks so yeah (laughs) and are you as big a duck hunter as rachel not as big i'll say that i'm definitely not as big of a duck hunter as rachel is um but i do enjoy it and especially coming from minnesota then out to north dakota and really seeing how big of a difference it is Mm. with duck hunting out here it's we're we're in a pretty good state for that so yeah <laughs> pretty I, good i'm definitely like, starting to take advantage of that yeah. <laughs> like maybe the best state to Pre- for duck yeah i mean actually yes so <laughs> <laughs> and you have a pup as well yes i do um her it's a black lab her name is lily she is gonna be seven years old in december and i'm expecting about five more puppies literally could be today or tomorrow she's she's about to have a litter of puppies oh wow yeah yeah so i'm sitting on the edge of my seat literally (laughs) and uh, are they all spoken for already no not yet not yet and are you keeping one maybe we'll see maybe come on there is uh, there is no way you're not keeping a puppy i know i'm telling myself that i don't need another dog right now but you know what happens you just fall in love with puppies and Mm -hmm. there you go you have another or two (laughs) 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 two dogs can't be any more difficult than a rooster in a bathtub (laughs) <laughs> That's true. I have a lot of chicken stories, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that we might save that for another podcast yeah. unless we really. <laughs> we can really, yeah. Yep. <laughs> tell us what you do for Pheasants Forever. So I am the Precision Egg and Conservation Specialist. Um, so I've been in this position now for just a little bit over a year and really has transformed the way I think about um, management, land management, even managing for our resources, and then even the way I speak with farmers. Mm. Um, so what I do as, as the precision ag and conservation specialist, I'm basically working with farmers, utilizing a precision software tool, um, which is very common amongst agriculture. There's a lot of different software programs out there. The one that I use particularly um, is called Profit Zone Manager. And basically it helps Um, show the profitability per acre instead of just focusing on, say, the yield per acre. So with showing profitability maps and return on investment maps, we can really hone in on acres that are lower producing or not breaking even. And really those show us like a really great opportunity to put something else on the ground there, something that can be more profitable maybe forage production Hmm. or maybe even looking into habitat or pollinator plots or things like that. So I'm working with farmers, helping them be more profitable, but also trying to put in these different alternative options, looking at other things that can be put on the ground that might be more optimal on those acres and can maybe earn us some more pheasants out here. So is, is precision ag, like from the wildlife perspective, it's still pretty new, right? I mean, it's, it's been in our vernacular at Pheasants Forever for maybe three years, thereabout. Mm-hmm. Is that, 
in the agriculture community, is like everybody talking precision ag? So in the agriculture community itself, I yes, I'd say pre- precision software programs are definitely a big thing that really precision has been around for over 20 years in agriculture. Mm. Um, I've only been in this game for about one year, so it's hard for me to really vouch for all that, but it has been around for quite a while now. And really it's just a matter of more and more farmers starting to use more software technologies. Um, As farmers are updating equipment like combines, tractors, things of that nature, um, some of these technologies are already built into the equipment. So they end up getting this new equipment that has that software built into it and they're like oh what's this maybe I could start using this on my operation and for some folks that's kind of that kind of is the starting point or for some other producers they might go out and put these software programs into their equipment so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. cool yeah and moving around the fireplace I'm looking at Kayla Uh, Kayla tell us uh, your life story in podcast form Alrighty. Well, I grew up in Lakeville, Minnesota, um, just spending weekends in the woods and on the water with my dad. And I still give him credit that I'm somehow still an avid hunter starting on ruffed grouse in central Minnesota, because (laughs) I think I fired my gun less than five times in five years. (laughs) Um, But then I went on to major in wildlife management at the University of Minnesota Crookston. um, And then got my graduate degree at NDSU and finished up not too long ago. Cool. And if folks want to follow you on Instagram, there are some monster sturgeon pictures <laughs> Indeed, that I yes. will uh, I will point people to because they are they are super cool. You you do a lot of fishing. Yeah, definitely spend a lot of my time in the summer and winter, I guess, uh, on the water. Um, yeah, my Instagram handle is at Kayla Rose Ruby. Those are my middle names. Okay, Kayla you, with a C. Yes, C A Y L A. Yes. And uh, you also have a pup. Yes, I do, Finley. Uh, He's just over a year, and he is a poodle pointer. Cool. So why did you choose a poodle pointer? Uh, You know, I was pretty set on a lab growing up, uh, dreaming of my first dog. Um, But actually kind of starting with this organization and knowing I'd be moving out to North Dakota and the potential uh, at some upland hunting, I liked the versatility, and I fell for the beard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And... Tell me, tell me the name again. Finley. Yes, Finley. Finley. And where's the name Finley come from? I don't know. We just had a list going for a really long time, and I don't even know if Finley was on the list, but somehow made it through. So we got to come up with a story for you to answer that with. So, like something with, you know, we laughed and we cried, and there was a <laughs> triumph of the human spirit, and there was drama. And I will say it's a town in North Dakota, Finley, and so that's kind of our, maybe our idea moving forward is North Dakota towns. Cool. That's a good idea. And you have a extremely unique role in the organization. I think you are the only person in our entire organization (laughs) of 400 employees with this title. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, But yes, (laughs) I am the women in conservation coordinator for North Dakota. Women in conservation coordinator. Tell us a little bit about what that means and what you do every day. So, yeah, it, for the most part, I target conservation outreach to women landowners, uh, just trying to tap into a resource that maybe hasn't been exposed to our mission or to the resources that are out there for conservation practices and programs. Um, 
reaching them through different events, uh, working with those landowners to just connect them to those resources and talk a little bit about um, why they might be interested in conservation and ideally leading uh, to more habitat on the ground. And I also get to spend some time working on some of our women's R3, recruit, retain, reactivate efforts uh, in terms of getting some more women hunters in the game. Cool. Well, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Yes. And we're going to go to our newest uh, co-worker, probably the newest in, um, co-worker in the entire organization as we record this podcast. So so no pressure, <laughs> Emily. <Right. laughs> um, welcome to Pheasants Forever and welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've been here for a week now. Oh, okay. So. Well, there's actually somebody that was hired yesterday. So you're, oh, you're, you're a veteran now. <laughs> You're, this is old hat to you. Yeah. So tell us um, a little bit about um, how you got involved in the organization, your, where you grew up, and do you have a dog? Yeah, so I grew up in southern Michigan, um, Hillsdale County. I kind of got involved with Pheasants Forever um, through a local chapter, um, through a local life member, actually. He uh, was my substitute teacher in high school and I was looking for a bird dog because I was kind of starting to get into hunting but um, hadn't really found a good outlet yet that I could do on my own um, and he approached me and said you know I hey I raise English setters um, I have a hunting preserve if you will come out and be a guide on my preserve since he lived locally um, he said I'll give you a bird dog and help you train it hmm. so uh, as anyone knows who's owned a bird dog, once you get one, you're hooked. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how that got started. He just, you know, it just took one one Pheasants Forever member taking me under mm. his wing, and, and uh, here I am. In R3 in the flesh and blood, right? Yeah. Yep. So. Well, welcome. Thank you. I do. I have a, a Cocker Spaniel right now. Okay. So. And what's your Cocker Spaniel's name? Bridger. Bridger. Yep. And where does that name come from? Um, do you know who Jim Bridger was? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm probably the only one old enough probably. to remember that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I always joke and say um, I judge people's character by whether or not they know who Jim Bridger was. <laughs> <laughs> so I passed? Yes, you okay. passed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it tells what you do for Pheasants Forever. Yeah, so um, just like Melissa, I'm a precision ag and conservation specialist. So working with farmers to set up uh, conservation programs that fit with their operations um, using precision ag technology. Uh, before this, I was a crop consultant, so I was kind of on, on the other end of the spectrum in retail ag, um, hmm. trying to get more acres into production and, uh, you know, trying to be profitable off of, off of acres using, um, you know, fertilizer, chemicals, uh, different seed, things like that. Um, but now just looking at it from a different angle saying, okay, you know, just like how you approach the farmer, well, let's look at different options besides just, uh, you know, conventional production to see if you can be profitable off of this land. Um, so kind of a different viewpoint coming in, um, but coming from that position, uh, it's given me a, a really good perspective of, you know, kind of what the farmers might be thinking and, um, you know, what their goals are and, uh, what their needs are. It, now, you've only been on for a week, so this yeah. question <laughs> might be more appropriate for Melissa. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're talking to farmers about precision ag, um, how important is wildlife to them in the grand scheme of things? Now, obviously, with, you know, 
all of us want to make a living, right? So mm-hmm. profitability probably is at the top of the pyramid. But are you getting questions about how do I get more pheasants on the ground? So I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much farmers do care about conservation. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, because they have such a personal connection with the land. It's not like they want to suck all the resources from it and, you know, totally deplete it. Uh, They're always thinking about how they can, how they can improve their operations, whether it's through conservation or, um, you know, um, just less inputs, um, no-till practices, things like that. So it's always something that's, that's in the back of their mind. Um, so, you know, having those conversations is, is a lot easier because, I mean, it's a real problem for them, especially coming from the area I was from. We're uh, right in kind of the Lake Erie watershed. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's something that they constantly have to think of, you know, uh, uh, different conservation practices and being able to utilize those in their operations. And I, I do think that they recognize that every farm does have some sort of fit for conservation, um, and and that's important to them. I, a lot of a lot of the people that I've met at Pheasants Forever banquets, you know, they're farmers, they're right. landowners, they're producers. Um, so it, it kind of goes hand in hand. I think a lot more than people realize initially. Well, and you have such a unique perspective coming from that Lake Erie watershed, which has been historically so troubled, right? right? You know, you have the algae blooms and, you know, just the water quality around that, um, you know, going into the lake has caused so many challenges. And you come out here to North Dakota and while, you know, you know, we've started the podcast lamenting the habitat loss, there's still hope, right? Mm -hmm. There is so much opportunity to turn the tide back for habitat and protect the temporary and seasonal wetlands out here and you know real really create um kind of the paradise that north dakota is and can be again you know so that's cool thank you thank you for um for joining the organization and the podcast so so maybe that's where we'll, we'll turn next rachel is thinking about you know your your trip um you know just personally and career wise so you're here at the the peak of CRP. You depart and you come back, and things have changed dramatically. And you're in the leadership role in North Dakota. You're you're working with the, you know the the agency partners both at the state and federal and local level. Um, how how do we attack or how do we partner? Attack is probably the wrong vernacular, right? <laughs> but how do we attack the problem is what I'm thinking about. How do we how do we turn the tide for habitat in North Dakota? And what are some of the exciting things that um, are in motion? So it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to find one particular thing to say we're going to get back, you know, 1.6 million acres, right? you know, back to the peak. And we may never get there. Unless we get um, 40 million acres in the right, farm bill. Right, and so that, that would be good for everybody. That's one thing. You know, the conservation community and us in Pheasants Forever, it's something we're always talking about with our chapters is how important the farm bill is. I mean, that's a... It's a very important piece of legislation for North Dakota. I mean, we've we've been a state that has accepted and welcomed CRP acres. Um, and so seeing a strong farm bill come out, I mean, can only do good things for North Dakota and have a good, strong conservation title with an increased acreage cap, you know. Um, that helps. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, just the amount of funding available in that, that, that helps. Um, you know, as far as statewide programs, again, we work with our um, – we work with our federal and state programs 
you know, our, the North Dakota Game and Fish Department is a great partner with us. They have the PLOTS program, Ooh. which not only provides access, but they have the flexibility within that program to help producers, you know, plant habitat back too. But their budget doesn't come anywhere near what a budget for the Conservation Reserve Program does. But that does help. And it, it addresses some of the needs for producers out there that are willing to open their land to access and stuff. Well, uh, yeah, let's spend a little time there because... Plots is a spectacular pl- program, and um, it, it had to have been one of the very first um, walk-in programs that exists in this country. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know the whole history, but um, it's been around for a long time, and in, in its peak was over a million acres. Right, yeah, it's, I, and you know, I don't know my history well enough either when the first year of Plots came out, but, you know, um, it was Governor Hoven at the time, who is now Senator Hoven, that was kind of his brainchild and plots, and he kind of, his administration saw that through, and yeah, our peak, I think was a million acres, and I think that peaked right around 2007 when Mm -hmm. we had the peak CRP acres, because there's a lot of, there can be a lot of overlap, you can pancake you know, conservation reserve program acres with the access acres. So just for listeners that aren't familiar with PLOTS and haven't ever hunted here, PLOTS, P-L-O-T-S, stands for Public Land Open to sportsmen. Private. Private land. land I'm sorry, sorry. Private yep. land opens to sportsmen, which then becomes public access. Right. Uh, so private land open to sportsmen. Um, and, you know, they, I believe it's yellow signs, right? Yellow that, triangles. Yep. Yeah, pretty, yeah. I mean, pretty identifiable for anybody that comes to North Dakota, maybe if you haven't been here, but you come to North Dakota and everybody looks for the, the yellow the yellow triangle signs. And North Dakota is also unique in the kind of the no trespass um, scenario like if it's not if, if there is a if you come up to a section line and there's no no trespassing sign technically you are allowed to hunt that property correct correct we i i don't know if this is the proper term but i call us an open access state and we're not technically unique i think nevada no is also an open access but they're also primarily you know predominantly public land right you know so um but yeah i mean if it's not posted um you are free to hunt it you can't hunt unharvested crop um and you have to you know if it's fenced in um then you know they only have to post around the fence or the gate so our producer ryan heinegger uh did our did a little eye hopping for us and got our uh um, Google search tells us that plots started in 1997. Mm-hmm. So that, um, that would put it, um, it had to have been one of the very first, um, public land or private land access programs out there. And I think this year, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe our producer can Google it too, but I think we're, <laughs> I think we're around, you know, we're over 730,000 acres in the plots program this year. It might be 760. Some of those two numbers are bouncing around in my head 760,000 acres or 730,000 acres this year so open to hunters 700 yeah and then um uh, you have waterfall production areas out here because this is um a waterfall mecca it is right it is america's (laughs) duck factory right and so uh duck stamp dollars um when when we advocate for upland hunters to buy two duck stamps um it is, you know, one for ducks, one for pheasants. Those, uh, those dollars are going into places like South Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, 
North Dakota and creating waterfall production areas. So that's another tool adding back some of those acres here across the state. Right. And we have a lot of uh, waterfall production areas, WPAs across the state. And yeah, while they have a duck on the sign, there's pheasants available. And I think all of us sitting around this table have probably hunted them before. And I mean, shoot the one out our back window last night, we were sitting around the table watching and, you know, of course we were admiring the ducks on the wetland, but you know, the roosters had to taunt us and fly literally right, <laughs> right between us and the wetland too. So, and you know, back, let's see and get my dates correct. Um, there was a push in 2012 to 2014 for what was termed Measure 5, which was to have a revenue stream generated through the oil and gas industry taking place in the Bakken, right, the northwest corner of the state that would fund um, habitat in the state, right? Yes. And that did not pass, but one of the outshoots of it is the Outdoor Heritage Fund. And that's another tool that's doing some good in the state. Tell us about the Outdoor Heritage Fund. It is. So out of, you know, the Measure 5 issue, you know, while that didn't pass, one thing that did come out is we do have some dedicated funding here in North Dakota for conservation. Um, that The Outdoor Heritage Fund was passed in 2013. And I think we had a, a funding pool of $30 million per biennium. You know, biennium, our legislative session here in North Dakota is every two years. So hmm. our biennium goes by two years. Um, and then back in 2017, actually, the, we were, you know, oil production had decreased. Oil prices went down. We weren't collecting as much um, extraction and production taxes. And so the state had kind of cut some budgets and the Outdoor Heritage Fund got knocked back to $10 million per biennium. And so that's where we sit now. But it is a dedicated fund funding pool. We have four directives, you know, which all create around, you know, enjoying natural areas, access, improving, you know, farm and ranching operations and providing wildlife habitat. And so that is a tool and, and Pheasants Forever here in North Dakota, we've, you know, we've submitted several grants, we've received a few and we use those to deliver mission, whether it be, you know, putting pollinator habitat on the ground, improving existing cover quality, um, working with ranchers in the western part of the state to implement grazing systems or create new grass if they need additional forage base. Um, and Ooh. so, yeah, and we just, I just submitted one October 1. We haven't done the hearing yet, so we don't know how that one's going to come. But that one's addressing um, soil health issues, salinity up in the northwest, north central part of the state. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about um, um, some of the initiatives that are happening in the state. And, and you know, we can look around the room and, and um, you know, what, what we have going on with uh, women, for instance, there's a lot of special events to engage women landowners. Uh, yeah, I guess Kayla here, I will jump in on that one. Um, so one of the main avenues I'm using to reach out to women landowners uh, is holding Women Caring for the Land events. It's a model developed by the Women Food and Agriculture Network. Um, just kind of more tailored to a woman's learning style, um, facilitates a lot of socialization in the morning, letting the women learn from one another and um, spend a lot of time getting to know each other in their operations and talking about why they might care about the land and just letting women relate to one another more um, rather than maybe a more uh, vertical learning style is what they call it, having someone with a PowerPoint presentation up there talking at them. Um, and it just creates an environment where they're more comfortable asking questions. Hmm. Um, and then we tour a woman's farmer ranch who is pretty passionate about conservation and um, see some of those practices on the ground. 
Uh, so is there, um, is it unique to North Dakota that there's um, an exceptional number of female landowners or is that true everywhere and this is kind of the the test pilot case for us uh it's kind of a trend across the country um so i believe it's 31 percent of u.s farmers uh are women Hmm. um, and we're just seeing an increase in women landowners as well so they may not be uh the farmer rancher themselves but uh are inheriting land or land is transitioning um to their hands um so not necessarily unique to north dakota but Uh, Definitely a starting point for Pheasants Forever. And some of the Wisconsin Farm Bill biologists um, are also holding these events. So um, I'm looking at Melissa as you talk to farmers about precision ag. Is there a difference in when you're talking to a female farmer versus a male farmer? Do they approach things any differently? So from my experiences, I've, one of my producers is a woman producer Mm -hmm. of the others who are um, men being brothers, fathers and sons, things of that nature. And between me and the conversations with each producer, overall across the board, everyone kind of just has different modes of communication and how things are. And so I actually didn't really notice much of a difference speaking with the woman producer compared to the men producers just because we were talking the same language talking about the same things right so in a sense gender wasn't really it's more of an individual thing than it is a gender thing right yeah. they, some people are motivated by profit some are motivated by wildlife soil right? exactly so every conversation that i have is always very different and um, with the woman producer in particular, she she also works in an FSA department as well. And so she kind of understands um, the benefits of conservation practices, and she implements many practices on her own operation too. Cover crops, um, CRP, she has numerous CRP acres and all sorts of things. And she hunts, she deer hunts, she pheasant hunts. So, yes. Yeah. So, so one thing as the listeners are probably have picked up on, you know, for once in, in our entire podcast scenario, my voice is the deepest, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, our entire team in North Dakota happens to be a, a group of extremely talented professionals, right, that all have um, degrees in wildlife and conservation and all happen to be women. Rachel, what... What is, has that opened doors for different sorts of opportunities on the conservation side, or is it just happenstance? I think it's happenstance. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, I don't think because we're all women that we're getting opportunities that other teams, you know, that might be mixed gender are getting. But Mm -hmm. I think what it has done is create a, a unique team dynamic. Um, and we always, you know, we're at our, you know, North Dakota team meeting right now. And some of the things we do is, you know, we look to the year ahead. Mm -hmm. What are our goals going to do? I mean, we all have our individual jobs. We all have our, you know, duties that we need to do on a daily basis. But as a team, you know, what do we want to push forward for in the next year? Sure. Um, And I think with us being an all-female team, those priorities kind of, they're they're different. Because, Hmm. you know, last year we met in the same place and we kind of sat down and we made a list. I call it our wish list. What are we going to do? over the next year and one of the things that kind of rose up is we want to get more women involved in the outdoors how can we do that how can we you know someone that's never hunted before or someone that's maybe not 
confident in their skills, how can we help build those skills up? And that was that was something that we, as a team, decided that we wanted to work on. Yeah, because we just announced as an organization kind of a, a series of learn to hunt women's events focused in North Dakota. And the, the amount of traction that's got from news coverage has been pretty um, pretty large. It's been, you know, there's a lot of appetite up here in North Dakota to get involved in pheasant hunting from the woman's point of view. Um, so what, what, how many events, what kind of things are coming up this fall um, that people can get involved in and where can they find out about, um, about some of these, um, these women's hunting events? So They're deciding who's going to answer yeah. this question. Yeah, I mean, we started back in our first event after our team meeting last year was a, we did a women wine and wild game event. And really the, the focus of that, and Renee can probably talk to it a little bit more. Um, and that's sold out, like, before the event even got to to the date, right? Yeah, we wanted a kind of a unique facility. We didn't just want to hold it at a, you know, a bar or at a banquet hall or something. Um so we, Renee tracked down a unique facility and we had a capacity of 60 people. Mm. And so we, you know, they, they were pretty adamant that we don't go over that amount. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Renee can kind of talk a little bit about why we, we started with that event and then kind of what it led us yeah, to. Yeah, tell us about uh, the theory or the goal behind it and then take us through what actually happened. Yeah, so our Women, Wine, and Wild Game event was kind of like a, a women's chapter interest meeting event one of our goals on our wish list was to start a women's only pheasants forever chapter in north dakota they exist in other states we we didn't have one in north dakota we do now and um, <laughs> and there is a big smile as a result of yes. that congratulations thank you so where is it based out of bismarck okay and tell us what what you did at the women wild and wild wine and wild game event that's a lot of alliteration for this guy <laughs> It is. We've, uh, as a team, we've said women, wine, and wild game a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a joke there about woodchucks and a woodchuck, chuck, chuck but, right? But it, I don't know what it is, so go ahead. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, it's right in the name. We gathered a, a lot of women in a room, and um, really the idea was to just get a bunch of outdoors women, like-minded women in a room and talk PF, talk hunting, talk what, um, the chapter could be what some goals would be for uh, starting a women's only pheasants forever chapter um, what the impact could be and I, I kind of tell everybody that I, I talk to it about is I wish you could have been there in the room and seen the excitement and um, really the need and the want for a community of sportswomen to exist was so evident hmm. and I know our team left and we were we were on fire it really just ignited our fire and kept it going but the need and the want for a women's only so what were the common um what were the common reasons when you talked to them why they what got them engaged and wanted to be involved you know because i because i hear oh I, I you know i love this dog and i want to get in the field and follow my dog and see what it was born to do and i hear you know i i want to know where my food comes from right like were those some of the same reasons or were there some different ones? Uh, there was a variety. Um, it's different even for kind of the five of us sitting right here. It's different for each one of us. And that's the beauty of it. Um, we kind of wanted to 
tailor it and have it be for everybody and to welcome all of those reasons why you want to do it, whether it's a family aspect and getting your kids out in the outdoors and in nature, um, knowing where your food comes from, the memories that you get from out in the mm -hmm. field. Um, so yeah, there's, we, we welcome all of them and it was really cool to see all of them. We had some non hunters in the room, um, ladies that wanted to hunt, uh, learn how to, um, and women typically learn better from other women. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they, there was a lot of ladies in the room that just wanted to learn, um, not only how to hunt for some of them, but how to do different things, how to pheasant hunt, how to duck hunt how how to chase different critters and um yeah learn from each other hmm. and you said everybody around this table around the fireplace has a little bit different reason for being interested in the outdoors and conservation what's your reason um i i grew up doing it i yeah. grew up wandering around in the outdoors following my dad around and he took me everywhere i was very fortunate to have him did your mom so. uh no she was around she um she was a supporter of it, mm -hmm. but yeah, I just, uh, I was a daddy's girl and the youngest of three girls and I just followed them everywhere, woods, wetlands. <laughs> and uh, What about your sisters? They hunted for a while. They still kind of do, but it's just not, uh, not as strong as it is with me, I guess. What about um, your friends? Do you gravitate to having friends that also hunt and fish or is that sort of irrelevant? I try. It's a little irrelevant. They they know what they get. The, my non-hunter friends, they know what they get when uh, they're friends with me. But uh, I uh, I don't know. Us on the team, we get along really well because we all have the same outdoor values and ethics and hmm. um, interests. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm fortunate to find the ones that do already like the outdoors. But, yeah. Hmm. Have you followed up with any of the, the folks that were part of that women, wine, and wild game have they been out this fall as a result of kind of the exposure and getting connected to the organization? Yeah, so a lot of them are part of our women's only uh, chapter in Bismarck, the Capital City Ladybirds. Um, there's been a few, um, you know, they came to our wing shooting clinics and learned how to uh, wing shoot, and that was pretty fun. So we've seen a lot of carry, carry over and carry through through our events and at the um, women's chapter meetings, but yeah, some of them have gotten out in the field and have increased their time outdoors because of what we're doing. So tell me the name of the chapter again. Capital City Ladybirds. Capital City. And when is their banquet? Uh, they haven't scheduled it yet, but okay. our next meeting is October 25th. So they October will then. October 25th. And if this podcast, which will probably air after that, do, do they meet every couple months? It's uh, every month this year is kind of, or this month, excuse me, is a little bit of an anomaly, but uh, second Thursday of every month is typical. And are you targeting other um, communities for women's only chapters or women's events? Yeah. I have a couple of towns on my wish All right. So yeah. tell us, uh, here's your opportunity. <laughs> Ladies out there wanting to get involved in North Dakota with a women's only um, Pheasants Forever chapter, where do you want to start some women's chapters? Um, ideally, Dickinson. Now we have two Pheasants Forever employees <laughs> in uh, Dickinson would be great. Um, so two in Dickinson, two folks live in Bismarck, and then and Melissa's off in the yeah, hinterlands. I'm way over in the southeast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we want to we want to start a women's only chapter. We have one in Bismarck. We mm -hmm. want to start one in Dickinson. Minot. Minot, mm -hmm. okay. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's, you gotta throw Fargo out we there, do, right? We do. Come so on now, kind of the bigger cities yeah. to start with, and um, where we know we can get quite a few people in the room and really take off, and then maybe look at the smaller towns and communities. Yeah, and then uh, so uh, let's go beyond just the women's ones. Where are we st- trying to start some chapters um, in the state, um, irregardless of um, um, you know if you're a guy or a gal. Uh, Actually, I just scheduled a chapter start meeting for Kidder County in Steele, North Dakota. Okay. Um, so about 40 miles uh, east of Bismarck. Uh, that meeting is on November 15th. Great. And then uh, Minot will be next. And yeah, but for the most part, as far as traditional chapter goes, North Dakota is pretty well covered, which we, is awesome. We, yeah, it is a good thing because we do have a fair number of members here, um, and it should be, right? Because... In the glory days when we talked about those bird numbers, um, you know, of 07, 08, North Dakota was far and away the number two pheasant producing state in the country. Um, South Dakota is the only one that can claim, you know, to be, uh, be higher when there's habitat on the ground. But, you know, times have changed. We've lost a lot of habitat. Um, all right. So we'll go back to, to Rachel. So we've got... Um, We've got CRP, and the farm bill is kind of the gem out there that holds the keys to the kingdom when it terms to total number of acres. And we've got um, the Outdoor Heritage Fund. We've got some really exciting new ways to engage women in the outdoors. Um, we've got R3 going on to engage other hunters and youth events. Um, anything we're missing that, um, that I haven't brought up, um, from an initiative perspective that you're working on and the team's working on to, um, to get some of those habitat ac- acres back. And, um, you know, the obvious one is precision ag, right. but before I go there, is there anything? You know, that's really where we are focused. I mean, precision ag is our new, I guess, go-to habitat thing, looking at new ways to, to work with producers and growers to find acres that habitat work. Um, you know, Melissa's covering the southeast. We've got Emily now, um, seven days in, she's covering the Southwest. So she's going to be in the heart of pheasant country. Um, and so I think that opportunity is there. Okay. Um, so you're out in that Mott Regent area. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm asking, we were doing a little microphone. So Renee, let's, um, switch, um, headsets to Melissa. We'll go, we'll go precision egg power hour here. <laughs> so, uh, Emily, you're what town in the Southwest? Dickinson. Dickinson. Oh, that's right. You, you said that and, and you're, um, I am from Lamore. Lamore. So where we're at today here mm-hmm. at Sicklestad Lodge, I live like 20 miles away. Okay. Yeah. And for folks geographically, North Dakota certainly has pheasants north of 94, uh, but kind of the, if you draw Interstate 94, heading out of Fargo, straight through Bismarck, Dickinson, everything south, right? That is the epicenter of pheasants in the state. I'm stretching it a little bit. That's a, a generalization, I guess. But when you do that, you kind of cut out, you know, the Missouri River Corridor, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously extends north of I-94, which has got some really good pheasant numbers. And then, I mean, if you look at our pheasant numbers from this year, the northwest has kind of blown the rest of the state out of the water as okay. far as production. So I don't want to I, I don't want to generalize, you know, just south of 94 is pheasant country because there's a lot of good air, other areas in the state that produce roosters. Mm-hmm. That's good information. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so precision ag. What's um, how are we engaging? 
producers, farmers to get um, to take a look at their um, their operation, their acres, and consider conservation as part of the mix. Yeah. So I mean, basically, what we're doing, having the conversations with producers, um, just looking at what they already look at, looking at their yield maps, looking at their profitability maps and return on investment, and really talking the dollars and cents about these practices rather than going on for hours about all these healthy benefits of wildlife and all things green and beautiful, but really speaking the language, um, talking the dollars and cents. What is more profitable on these acres? What can we do to help raise your bottom line? So really looking at the opportunity of finding those red acres, Mm -hmm. basically being those lower producing, um, trying to implement something on those acres to help raise their profitability. And we have a great funding source to kind of be able to um, help implement on these acres. Um, We have the ability, thanks to North Dakota Game and Fish, actually, for donating or contributing funds for cost share assistance and also the opportunity to do 10-year agreements on some of these acres. And then, I mean, ultimately, we wouldn't be able to do anything that we're doing today without our partners and the contributions and fundings with North uh, Department of Health. We got our soil conservation districts that are in the game too. We got North Dakota Natural Resources Trust. Um, Even our local chapters are contributing to the efforts that we're doing so so if i'm i if i'm just boiling this down for a listener you know if a farmer's out there on his field or her field mm-hmm. and they're um they're, they've got a piece of software on their combine yeah. that's telling them how much how much bushels of corn put um per acre they're pulling off right yep and they're measuring also over the course of that season how much pesticide, herbicide, fertilizer, mm-hmm. how much gas they're putting into the con, um, combine. Mm-hmm. So all those numbers are getting pumped into this piece of software. Yes, exactly. So plugging in their harvest data, the yield, the bushels mm-hmm. per acre, and then also if they have the, vari- the variable rate technology, so variable rate seeding, variable rate fertilizer, chemical, we can put those in as well. And then on top of that, we also plug in those associated budgets with everything that they can do possibly on that field. Hmm. So able to determine um, what is their break-even point Mm -hmm. for yield? What yield do they need to break even? And then looking beyond that, instead of field averages, really focusing on that acre by acre. Because if you can get rid of the low-hanging fruits Mm -hmm. and average with the nice production, profitability just goes up. By hundreds, if not by thousands. And, you know, if I think about when I first started coming out to North Dakota bird hunting to today, it seems like corn continues, cornfields continue to go north, 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 north. Mm. When, I, when I would come out to, like, the McCluskey or the Goodrich part of the state, mm-hmm. I'd see a lot of flax and sunflower. You go there now and you see a lot more corn. Mm-hmm. What's changed? Honestly, um... I personally think it's just kind of, in a way, somewhat tied with human nature, but also markets. So Hmm. markets, looking back seven, six years ago when corn was pretty high up, can also kind of associate that with loss of habitat. Mm -hmm. So seeing those really nice corn numbers, that was profitable to go out and 
put out more cornfields. Mm-hmm. And now today with markets where they're at, there's a lot of areas that uh, even in conversation, folks are like, we should have never tore that up. Mm. <laughs> so just having conversations like that and hearing really how mar- markets can play such a huge role right. in what is getting put out on the landscape. And then back to kind of the human nature of things, we like to, I mean, I love to be lazy if I can. So if I can just have two different crops and simplify my operation, simplify my equipment, have less equipment, um, because if the more you diversify, the more specialty equipments you're going to have. But then again, looking at the other side of that, having that diversity on the landscape is a beautiful thing. And also for profitability, because you're looking at other markets that you can play a role in year to year. So really there's, there's two, two whole sides to that. When it comes to CRP, are there particular practices or maybe it's beyond CRP, there are particular things that there's a massive appetite in North Dakota to get enrolled in? So Maybe I'm just thinking of this because I've been involved in it throughout the whole summer, but cover crops. Mm -hmm. Cover crops is this new thing, not really even that new, but it's really starting to hit a wave in North Dakota of folks starting to dive in who have never really thought about cover crops before. So now there's more programs and cost share available for cover crop seed and planting and getting more of that on the landscape to hopefully... Instead of only having stuff growing for (laughs) less than half of the year and then having bare soil for the other half of the year, we can have something on the ground, hopefully, throughout that year. Having roots in the ground throughout the year is an amazing, beautiful thing. Um, So just ultimately having something something on the ground to hopefully not have soil blowing in the air. So I'm going to break this down even further if I can simplify this, right? So um, when do you start planting your cornfield in North Dakota? Is that May roughly or is it April? Depending on if if there's a spring. For some reason this year was just kind of weird and there wasn't really a spring. But um, like sometimes could be mid-April, late April, or we're looking into May. Sometimes even creeping into beginning of June, just depending on the time frame. Okay. So So. late spring, early summer, and then harvest is generally around the pheasant. Well, no, and here pheasant openers early. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking late October harvest or mid-October harvest? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, corn and soybeans in this area, um, especially in the southeast, we're talking harvest can really get going. I'd say mid-September and then folks are really trying to wrap things up before Thanksgiving okay so and then this year again being kind of strange this fall we got about 10 inches of snow last week so (laughs) honestly harvest has had a really slow start this year Um, but now folks are out in the field and really getting rolling all right so harvest comes out and then from a cover crop perspective Mm -hmm. farmer goes back in and plants what So there's different ways that you can get cover crops out on the fields. Um, You can fly it over by a broadcast. And so if you wanted to, say, put rye interseeded in your corn, uh, typically folks might try to get that flown in in August. Um, Honestly, the sooner the better sometimes. So I've got this visual of me um, (laughs) out the back of an airplane with a bag of seed flying over a field, 
Like, woo! Am I far off? I think, honest. so I've never been in the plane where they're spreading cover crop seed, but I don't think it's that. Oh, I'll, okay. just, I'll just say that. That sounds a little unsafe. Renee, oh. we could sell the heck out of that at a banquet. Ride in the plane to throw a broadcast seed out of it. Yeah. Um, so, but it's honestly, if it kind of boils down to when they can go out and get the cover crop seed in, because mm. there's a lot of things that can play a role. Um, if ultimately really, it'd be nice if you could get the seed in the ground, mm-hmm. say, if you can, if you have something to go out and plant it while the corn is growing, um, that's a good kind of head start, but you don't want to do it too early cause you don't want it to necessarily compete with your crop that you have out there. So mm. timing, weather, all sorts of things play a role. Right. I mean, we're in North Dakota. It's going to be like an yeah. Arctic tundra here in a month. What's going to grow? It's going to be 60 today mm. though. Well today, <laughs> but like how fast do these cover crops grow? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of different options for cover crops. I, I mentioned just one, rye going into mm-hmm. corn, which a lot of folks, if for folks that are just starting out, that's kind of a nice way to start out and test out cover crops. Um, other things, if people have wheat in rotation, mm-hmm. wheat comes off end of July-ish, maybe right beginning of August. Um, that's a great opportunity to really go in after that's harvested and go plant um, cover crops into the ground. And then those folks, especially if they have cattle, mm-hmm. you can go out and graze those cover crops. Um, and some one conversation I had with a producer, he had, he had enough cover crops and enough winter pasturing acres that in March, he said he had only put out eight bales so far that winter hmm. for over 400 pair, I think. Just... It, Either way, does not matter. Mm-hmm. I just think that it's still bizarre. Only eight bales put out wow. just because they had that much forage out there on the landscape. So I've heard folks talk about radishes and turnips. Is that a relevant cover crop for Yep, radishes? yeah, yep. And so with cover crops, um, it's kind of a tool for nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still learning all of the different niches that each cover crop can do and its capabilities um, of which turnips and radishes, they, they have a certain niche with um, how they manage nitrogen in the soil. And so, and then they're also a great forage value above ground. So cattle can go out and graze that. Hmm. So there's all sorts of multiple benefits. For so a big benefit is soil, right? To yeah. prevent the erosion, mm-hmm. um, return some nitrogen back to the soil, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, obviously wind erosion. Um, and then water quality, right? Because it serves mm-hmm. as something of a buffer, right Mm -hmm. for um wildlife benefits uh beyond it's keeping a little bit of habitat on the ground in Mm -hmm. you know through the winter right in my eyes going from something growing on the ground only half the year to now having something on the ground year round Hmm. i find just super immensely beneficial i have yet to get the picture perfect image of a pheasant amongst cover crops but that (laughs) will happen someday soon i i foresee it but i i think it has immense benefits i think a couple things to keep in mind too um a lot of people when they are going out and applying these cover crops it's not like you necessarily have to pick one uh you know one variety or one you know just rye you can you can do a mix of cover crops which again just adds to the the biodiversity in the soil and um 
And in addition to that, I've seen just from some of the producers that I've worked with um, back in Michigan, uh, you know, these chemical programs that farms are using, they're a lot of times very expensive. Mm -hmm. And being able to keep a, uh, some sort of crop growing year round, um, it, they're able to control their weeds a lot better. Um, a lot of people are concerned with being able to get on get on the cover crop in the spring and like for say if you're planting corn being able to kill that off uh, and then go in and plant um, as long as you're able to to get on it early and get it you know burned down um, it, it does have a lot of benefits you know you, you are able to control those weeds a lot better than if there's just nothing growing and, and you know you leave that mm -hmm. open for uh, we have a couple of different problem weeds back home, mare's tail and um, water hemp and things like that, that are, have developed a kind of a resistance to chemicals. Um, so any tool we can use to kind of help combat those, you know, we, we need to take advantage of it. Tell me about like the frustration points in finding X, you know, is it boots? Is it you know, I know what one of them is because I hear it all the time from my own wife. It's pants, <laughs> right? Like, okay, let's start there. Pants. Is that the most irritating thing is trying to find upland bird pants? I would, I mean, yeah, because at least a lot of the places that we're hunting, you know, you're upland bird hunting, you go with, you know, you're going through areas with thistle. No one wants to get poked in the leg with thistle. Um, so, yeah, finding a good pair of upland pants. There's a few manufacturers out there that make it, but So tell me, tell me a few that you found that you're happy with. So I think my pair, the two pair of upland pants that I've owned, I think are Cabela's brand. Okay. And stuff. They actually make a women's one. It's a, uh, I don't know, it, it, they're, <laughs> this might be two women. They're very high-waisted. <laughs> So, I mean, even the fit there, you know, we're, we're particular in how we like our clothes. And, so are and, guys, yeah. honestly. I mean, I, you know, I'm a short guy and trying to find um, pants can be a challenge. Yeah. So I, I can identify. That's why I want to bring it up because I know we have partners that will listen. And so, so um, you know, Melissa, what, what kind so, of pants have you found? So, like, growing up, I've always just worn blue jeans because mm -hmm. you can you can do that yep. going out pheasant hunting. Just throw on a pair of somewhat water-resistant boots and walk around in your jeans and just deal with the morning dew, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. um, but now to the point where I'd like to, where I would like to invest in pants, I have not I have not found a pair of pants that I like yet. But just a few weeks ago, I I have the interest of chaps. Mm -hmm. And I tried on a pair of regular sized chaps because normally there's two options. There's the regular and there's husky. Yeah. So I go for the husky, <laughs> not the husky. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm a bit on a petite frame, but so I go for the regular and they are still just giant. And honestly, comfort wise, I don't want to feel like I'm walking around like, and tripping over my chaps. Like, I, that's just something that I don't want to deal with. So, it would, I don't know. And they're obviously, they're more designed for men. I have not found a pair of chaps that are specifically designed for women. Mm. So, that is an issue that I very recently ran into. Uh, and then boots is another thing that I've ran into as well. Because once you start getting getting into women's upland boots or really even just any pair of hunting boots for that matter the pair that 
you like and can do everything that you want it to do, the price on that is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. There is nothing in the middle for just an average person to say, I just like a nice pair of boots. Um, But so just really with some of those women specific good hunting boots, the, the prices, it just seems like those are really top shelf. So Kayla, have you found any luck with boots, pants? Yeah, I guess I'll add in a few anecdotes. Um, I am five foot two, uh, so pants are a pretty big struggle. Um, I, yeah, I've yet to really find a solution. I sometimes have youth gear, but I find that it's not quite as quality. Um, and obviously we're particular about the way things fit, but more so for me, like for functionality, like if my pants are falling off, I mean, A, they don't look good at all, but <laughs> B, it's just frustrating. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just like growing up and stuff, generally being with men in the field, it's like, I can't complain about being cold or being wet, but then my gear makes me be way more cold and wet than they are. So, um, I guess that's a frustration. And then as Melissa said, just, um, I think that it's definitely been improving. I think Upland is a category that seems to be more lacking than um, waterfowl or um, big game gear. And then just that upper price range, it seems to be um, where it's starting at anyways. And there's less available in just like an average day person's budget. (laughs) So what have the, you know, you guys have been hunting. So you've solved some of this with your own like personal hacks, right? (laughs) Like we figured out how to get around some of these things. So tell us a little bit about, you know, you mentioned you wear blue jeans and you try to find chaps to to fit. Now, okay, you've encountered a different problem, (laughs) but what are some of the things that you can suggest to women? Like you're getting involved, you're going to encounter this, but here's how to solve it. I guess, oh, sorry, go ahead. I guess one thing I'd say is, you know, we all like good gear and I, I don't want us, I don't want the audience to think that, you know, we need perfect gear to get out there and hunt because right. I think those of us sitting around the table are going to go out and hunt regardless of what we're wearing. Sure. But we're also, you know, dedicated sportswomen that are going to spend money on things that fit us and that we like. Um, so I just want to get that point out there because I don't, I don't want the audience to think, oh, well, they need, you know, they need the perfect pair of pants to hunt. Um but as far as get arounds, I'm a waterfall hunter. I mean, I, I upward sure. hunt, but you know, a lot of times I will, if there's not women's waders available, I'll go out and try to find, you know, some men's waders, you know, maybe they only start at size nine mm-hmm. and those are too big. But if I can find the, the brand of men's waders that maybe start at a boot size seven, then that's usually what I go with. You know, that's just, I can't go out and just pick any pair of waders off the shelf. Sure. I have to go and sometimes it keeps takes multiple trips to different stores or call in online retailers or something like that. But that's one of the things I've adapted to as far as with waiters. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think anytime I see something, you know, when I'm out at Cabela's or, you know, any outdoor store, if I see something that's in my size, even if I don't really need it right at the time, <laughs> I'm going to get it because you have to take advantage of that, you know, when, when you see those available because it doesn't happen very often, especially in the store I think online you can find uh, more of a variety of options, uh, but then then you get the drawback of not being able to try anything on and mm. um, not being able to really uh, kind of get a feel of the the quality and the material and um, because that does matter, sure. um, you know, as far as uh, the performance of the gear, um, you can kind of 
try it on and feel it and, and be able to tell, okay, yeah, I'm going to get stabbed with thorns <laughs> through this or, you know, this, this might work. And um, one company, my Upland pants are from um, Prios or Proas. Proas, Proas, yeah. Um, and I, I love them. I mean, they fit great and they're made for women. And um, I did have to spend quite a bit on them. But uh, to me, it, it was worth it because I do a lot of Upland hunting. But, you know, when you talk about kind of, barriers of entry for women to get into hunting I do think that that's kind of a, a drawback for a lot of women because it's a it's hard to find mm-hmm. gear and b when you do find it it's super expensive and you know you're already investing for someone who's just getting into hunting you're already investing in you know the the guns and the different equipment that you need and and so to just be able to find kind of that middle ground um, average person stuff that that men I think kind of take for granted a little bit because you have so many options and it's like we have you walk into fleet farm and it's everywhere for (laughs) us right i mean you're right you can you can buy the entry point stuff in fleet farm anywhere in the country and it'll probably fit the average joe right but it's awfully difficult to find that if you're a woman yeah you know here's one and you guys can correct me if i'm wrong but like a strap vest. To me, strap vests are absolutely unisex. Doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal. Mm. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I might be wrong. But so tell me, does that work for you or not so much? So I did just buy one of our strap vests, um, and it it works. I can wear it, but uh, again, being so small, and they come in regular sized and husky. Uh, right. So it's it's a little big. I know I have like a I have the waist buckle tightened all the way and I have like a three foot strap hanging off that has to be tied to the side and it's still there's like it could be tighter okay and just wear uh to like the pockets on it I feel like would hit lower on someone um taller so like when I put my shot collar remote Mm -hmm. that'd be I have to put on the left side because that'd be where I'd shoulder the gun because the straps are tightened all the way that is a frustrating point, yeah. just <laughs> mounting the gun and you have something there that you wouldn't normally be. Well, have you ever used, like, a game belt? I have not, no, but that's a good trick. Oh, uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. I know um, um, there's a few companies that make, you know, where you can carry your shells and it's actually got a game pouch. I think Filson make one, makes one and Game Hide, and then you don't have anything on your shoulders, but you have to come up with something else to put orange on, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, right. Um, what about shooting shirts and same problem there or not that big a deal? I think not that big a deal in North Dakota where it's yeah. freezing cold most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> so good point. we're often in something bulkier, but I don't know if others. All right. Oh, Melissa's got something. Go ahead. I, so shooting shirts were something that I also just recently kind of invested in and, there are more women's options that are out there, um, especially some really nice ones and ones that are within my price range, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, just, I mean, RPF ones, they've gotten a few new, nice, good quality. We've got some Um, Orvis ones added to the line. Yes. I invested in that one and I, I like that one a lot. (laughs) I bought that one too. Yeah. So, (laughs) and that's another thing that our whole team is going through right now is that, with kind of the small pool of women's clothing options for upland hunting or hunting in general, 
we're now having to coordinate with each other. Um, what what pair of pants are you wearing today? You're wearing that color? Oh, okay, okay. I'll uh, wear something different because now we are getting the same clothing <laughs> items. And before you know it, we're going to all have the same pair of pants, yeah. same shirts, same vests, same everything. Any uh, uh, On the boot front, anything that uh, is particularly successful for you that you like on the boot? hunting boot front or you just you find a nice pair of hiking boots and you roll pretty much um something that i learned on our hunt last year together as a team i had to walk through a creek and i was wet up to my knees so this year i brought my muck boots i was like to heck with it i'm just gonna wear my muck boots we'll maybe hike a mile who knows and i was just i was just fine wearing those yeah so yeah um at least from my perspective, where there's probably the most innovation happening, or at least attempt, is on the shotgun front. There are a variety of manufacturers from, you know, the si- the Siren line from Cesar Guarini. Franke's got a women's line. CZ has a women, um, women sh- women's shotgun. There's a variety of them coming out there. Anybody use a women's oriented shotgun? And if not, what do you use and what do you find um, uh, does it make a difference? I think for me, um, I've never really uh, looked much into buying a specific women's shotgun. Um, right now, I, I'm shooting a CZ 20 gauge, uh, it's a Redhead Premier over under. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, I've been happy with that so far. Um, I guess I just haven't really invested a whole lot into different shotguns just because, you know, if I have one that works, I can shoot birds with it. Right. That's, that's and all that I need. A CZ Redhead <laughs> is a very nice shotgun. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've enjoyed using it so far. What about you, Renee? Gosh, I don't know if I'm a good one to ask for this. <laughs> I use uh, I use my trusty Benelli for everything. Which just, what Benelli? I have a super black eagle. Okay. Just a 12 gauge, but waterfowl to uplands. I just I don't switch. I just take it. I eventually need to look into these women's guns though, because I'm intrigued and it's a lot nicer carrying even a 20 gauge. It's lighter and pulls up a little bit nicer mm-hmm. in some instances. But yeah, I just use my trusty Benelli for everything. And I'm looking at Rachel, the uh, waterfowl junkie. Yep. So I'm guessing you probably have a Benelli camouflage. Um, you probably shoot semi-auto of some sort. I do. Yeah, I have a uh, a 13, almost 14-year-old Benelli Super Black Eagle too. Uh, the camo is so worn on it that it's kind of shiny white. Um, <laughs> that's not but so no, good for ducks. <laughs> right. No, that, I mean, that's my, um, I duck, like I said, I mean, I upland hunt too, but I do a lot of waterfall hunting. And so that's my mm-hmm. go-to waterfall gun. And it's my late season pheasant gun because hmm. um, it's a 12 gauge. I do have a uh, 20 gauge over and under Weatherby, hmm. which fits really nice. It doesn't shoulder the best. Just, I need to get the pad custom fit and stuff, but then lately I've been stealing, borrowing my husband's, um, <laughs> he's got a 12 gauge, uh, he's got a 12 gauge weather be Athena over and under, huh. which I don't know. I just, I don't. And Athena. Athena. Who makes Athena? Weatherby. Weatherby yeah. Athena. So yep. it, that sounds like it would it's, be made for a woman. It's pretty and it fits. I mean, it pulls up really nice. So yeah. a lot of times I will shoot with that instead of my 20 gauge. Okay. Um, but I've got my eye on a, 
I've got my eye on my own. Yeah. 12 gauge over and under. I just don't know what. I mean, I, I keep looking at the Benelli. That was 828 used. Mm-hmm. Nice looking shotgun. But mm-hmm. then I look at the sirens too, and I don't know. It's. I don't want to say those words like I don't need another gun. Uh, <laughs> I, I have I have had the for- good fortune of shooting the siren, a woman's um, modeled gun, and um, I don't. I, I'm, I they say that women have longer necks, right? So you have a different mount, mm-hmm. and I can shoot the heck out of a siren. <laughs> I can. I mean, I, I, maybe I've got a long neck or something, but it, it it's a beautiful shotgun. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's you. you you pay for it, but it is an absolute um, heirloom. Um, what about, uh, yeah, you mentioned 12-gauge. Uh, I heard a little bit of 20-gauge. Um, does it make any difference to you from a 20 to a 12-gauge? Was there, you know, you do hear, like, the intimidation of the recoil, right? Any suggestions for folks listening out there what you would recommend starting with if you're a new woman hunter? Um, I guess, well, when I was little, I started out on a good old 410, mm-hmm. but uh, pretty easy to ease your way into um, the world of shotguns with that. But I don't mind 12 gauges. I shoot them. I shoot mine often. Um, I shoot it for everything, especially waterfowl. But um, 20s are just kind of nice, especially if you're going to go upland hunt. They're light, like yeah. I said, to carry, and it's just a little bit easier on That you. is not gender-specific at no, all. No, it's Because nice. I would tell you, it, you know, I drop down to a 28-gauge when I'm hunting Sharpies because it is just heavy carrying mm-hmm. a 12-gauge over hill and dale so yeah. it doesn't matter what gender you nope. are the lighter shotgun is a little nicer it makes a difference it does yeah um you know w- what else um uh, you know from a equipment front that well i know one thing that i think you brought up about sizing a shotgun you know that's sort of a hack um or a get around for folks that you know do want it doesn't matter if you're men or a woman like taking a shotgun into a gunsmith and getting it fitted for you mm-hmm. is a big deal. It, it is. It's something I have not done yet. And it kind of, it's, it's there in the back of my mind. And it's really come out from this summer because we've been doing, you know, we talked about some of the women's events we've done. And we've been hosting them at this location in Bismarck, Capital City Sporting Clays. And the owner, Mark, is super, I mean, he's super great at giving instruction. But he will say, you know, doesn't matter if you buy a siren or, you know, a Benelli. It, a gun is never going to come out of a box fitting you. Mm-hmm. And just some of the instruction he gave us and the participants about, you know, even the pad on the back, you know, you, you think that nice concave mm-hmm. pad is going to fit, but really if you have to hold your, you know, the butt up over your shoulders, just poking you. And so like my 20 gauge, even though it fits me as far as length, the pad needs to be changed because it, it just pokes right into my shoulder and it's uncomfortable to shoot if I, if I mount it properly. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's something I need to do. My Benelli, as much as I love it and I shoot it, it it's too big for me. I know that. I just adapt and I, I deal with missing sometimes. <laughs> oh, we all adapt and deal with missing sometimes. <laughs> uh, all right. So transitioning out of the gear front to a group of hardcore North Dakota bird hunters. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of Pheasants Forever members that make this trip annually. Actually, twice a year, right? Because you buy a North Dakota license and you get two seven-day periods if you're a non-resident. Um, you know, a lot of folks will come out for opening weekend because there's a lot of tradition around that. Or they'll come out for, um, you know, that, that 
duck season, right? They'll hunt ducks in the morning and chase pheasants and sharpies um, through the through the daytime. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll use that second half of the season later in the year. Give us some insider pro tips from North Dakota on, you know, what, uh, what could help some non-residents put a few more pheasants in their game vest? I guess the, you know, we get contacted a lot being Pheasants Forever staff by mm-hmm. our members throughout the U.S. asking about, about, you know, coming to North Dakota and hunt. And I'm amazed by that. I mean, I guess I don't know why they're not in North Dakota, but the plots program, mm-hmm. you know, that's the, the guide is available online. So you can kind of look at, you know, look at where acres are open to public access and kind of target there. Um, so I always say, if you're coming to North Dakota, you know, check out the plots guide. If you know what part of the state you're coming to, you know, you can print just those pages off. Um, that's a great resource to get access. Um, as far as where to find the birds, um, you know, our game and fish department every year kind of releases our pheasant survey and it's pretty spot on as far as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, the Northwest, I mean, the Northwest kind of just, they had good production. And so mm-hmm. kind of paying attention to that, so you know, which part of the state you should target, um, and don't be afraid to try new places and put miles on. I yeah. Guess. Well, I did a podcast a few weeks ago with um, the South Dakota team. And one thing that applies, you know, irregardless of the the Dakota you're in, north or south, 39th or 40th state in the country. <laughs> they signed them at the same time. I know. That, uh, that was a bit of trivia, too, <laughs> that they signed them at the same time, shuffled them up. So you didn't know who, which state is. It, it went from Dakota territory to North Dakota and South Dakota. One is 39, one is 40, and nobody knows which one is which. There's your bit of Dakota trivia. We're we're farther north, so that puts us on top, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's how that is. Alphabetically, um, North Dakota comes first, so you're 39, and South Dakota is termed 40th. There's your uh, here's your state trivia for <laughs> for this one, um, b- but what's relevant um, from a bird hunting perspective, I, and I'll circle back to the what I was talking about in South Dakota is the WPAs, the waterfall production areas. You are in the duck factory of North America, and you know as I look, you know we all turn around and look out the window. We have a waterfall production area, out the glass windows with cattails and grassland habitat and don't let the fact that it's a waterfall production area fool you load up that steel shot because you got to use steel um and and hit those cattails and that's the place whether you're even if it's early season you're going to get a little wet wear your muck boots wear your muck boots um (laughs) wear your your Irish setter rubber boots, uh, but um, yeah, hit those cattail side or the, the edges of the cattails, and then once it freezes, you know that's a completely different game. But yeah. the birds are absolutely in the waterfowl production areas up here. I mean, and you get into the southwest of part of the state, and we don't have as many waterfowl production areas. Of course, we're out of the prairie pothole region over there, but that is pheasant country. But there, I'd say look for. Um, you know, look at, we have a lot of small rivers that throw through those, you know, riparian areas. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the traditional strongholds for pheasants in the southwest. You know, the the riparian areas, um, if you find weedy patches in crop fields, you know, we have kochia and Russian thistle, which are nasty weeds, but 
man, they sure make good pheasant, you know, pheasant hunting habitat. So when you get in the Southwest, just looking for those areas and hitting those areas. I think as someone who's been here for a week now, (laughs) (laughs) I can speak pretty well to out-of-state hunters. Um, Last Sunday, I went out to an area of plots land, and I was just telling the team last night, I saw more birds in the two hours hunting there than I had seen my entire life growing up in Michigan. So I'll just say a little bit of caveat. We do have the Michigan Pheasant Restoration Initiative in the state of Michigan. And um, there there's some exciting things happening in the Thumb area of the region and down in the, um, oh, like Macomb County and over towards um, uh, Lake Michigan. So fingers right. crossed right, right. that I don't know that we'll ever make Michigan, North Dakota. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's, there's still hope there too. Right. Well, and there's definitely no lack of, of interest and passion and you know effort going into the state uh it's just it's a tough battle yeah it is and you know you do come out here and you think um and and i think that's the moral of the story is that you come out here and you recognize that there's so much opportunity to create habitat that we have to seize now before it's too late you know and it it should be um, and I know you're going to ar- argue it. it should be the number two pheasant producing state in the country. And Rachel looked at, will look at me and say, it should be number one. <laughs> uh, and, and there's, there's potential there. I mean, it's, it's suffered through, um, North Dakota has lost a tremendous amount of habitat in the last uh, decade. Um, it was compounded by a really massive, um, d- difficult winter two years ago. Right. Yep. And then had a drought on top of that and then um we had really late snowstorm a year ago and it's just been you know north dakota is kind of the epicenter of bad times from a pheasant's perspective in the window of the last decade so you know part of it is you know i I mentioned the rising phoenix right that's that's partly how we refer to this team here, but it's also partly the the motif or the um, the model for North Dakota bringing the bird back through a variety of initiatives that we have going on. Whether that's um, you know adding more CRP acres to the ground, working with Precision Ag, um, talking with uh, female-oriented landowners, getting more women involved because there's a really unique appetite here in this state that's built around, you know, independence, right? And it, it's a very independent-minded um, community, it, big community, a state, right? But there's a lot of appetite to turn things around here. Right. I think, yeah, like you said, we have a lot of opportunity, um, you know, the Farm Bill, other programs, state initiatives, but I'm going to throw in, we need just a dash of luck too, because mm-hmm. we are so dependent weather. on weather. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can, all the stars can align and then we have a, you know, a hard winter and it's, it's tough. I remember a map that, um, you know, we, we used when I first started at Pheasants Forever that like 98% of the country, the number one limiting factor for pheasants is nesting cover. And that's true in North Dakota, with the exception of there's one little spot in the country where it's it's that part of that western North Dakota and eastern Montana where winter cover shelter belts is the number one lim- lim- limiting factor for birds. And you know you mentioned that there's there's a little bit of rebound happening in western North Dakota right now. Yeah. So, uh, what have I missed? What you know from a from a pheasants forever perspective for a woman's um, 
bird hunting perspective, what did anything that uh, you guys wanted to talk about before we throw another log on the fire and, uh, and talk about potentially lacing up some boots and going to that WPA <laughs> behind us? It is calling our name. Sure. It's, <laughs> it's an absolutely beautiful day out here. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to the North Dakota meeting. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure talking with all of you, and I'm really excited to see the future of Pheasants Forever in North Dakota. If folks want to, to learn, learn more, get involved, Rachel, uh, f- they can follow along. Uh, Instagram at? We have on Instagram, we're nodak underscore Pheasants Forever. And then we have our Facebook page, which is just Pheasants Forever North Dakota. And we use, I mean, we're pretty active as a team on social media. So if you want to know what we're doing, just follow along because we, we keep it updated. <laughs> and if you, you're interested in attending a banquet or getting involved in a chapter, Rach, um, Renee, how do, how do folks um, get involved in a um, North Dakota chapter? Um, they can contact me at any time um, through Instagram, through our NODAC Pheasants Forever Instagram through Facebook. Um, I'm reachable many ways, but my contact info is out there. So absolutely. I'm always looking for more volunteers and more chapters. And uh, you can find our calendar of banquets at pheasantsforeverevents.org. Uh, a lot of them occur around hunting season, but there are some events in the spring. And as we mentioned during this podcast, there's um, a desire to start some new ones, including a few women's uh, chapters uh, and a lot of women's events that are coming up in towns, uh, including Dickinson, Bismarck, and Fargo. Did I miss any? <laughs> Minot. Minot. I did. I missed Minot twice. Sorry, Sorry Minot. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to throw a log on the fire, get our cl- upland clothing ready. Turn the dogs loose. We have a, a we got a mix of labs, poodle pointers. We got short hairs. It is going to be a fun day in the field in North Dakota. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Thank you for following along. Please make sure you get involved. We need you. We need you to make a difference in introducing somebody, man, woman, child, a dog. Introduce somebody into the outdoors and please help us create habitat. It's good for the birds and beyond. It's good for those uh, bugs, bees, monarch butterflies, water quality, soil resources, and the human spirit. Thanks for listening. This is On the Wing with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever.